It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ every weekday morning from our studio on the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, it's a Monday. I'm in my red sweater, my cozy sweater, so I'm feeling very relaxed and ready, sort of like a uh, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers sort of sweater, don't you think? And so I'm just on fire, uh, ready for this particular message, one of my favorite themes out of all the themes I've ever taught on. And that is, uh, it's going to be a series called Jehovah in Human Skin. So for those of you that are familiar with how uh, it works on Mondays, and Nathan does the same things on Thursdays, we, I'm going to give a four-part series, but only the first part is going to be in the podcast. So if you're listening to the podcast, you're only going to get this first part. And I'm not saying that you're going to be harmed if you don't get the other three. It's just if you want to take it deeper, you're going to have to go to ellersley.com forward slash daily, and you can get part two, three, and four. Okay, but this is going to be a study in the godness of Jesus. And if you've listened to my last couple uh, series that I've given on Mondays, you're going to notice there's a theme going on here. And that is I'm talking a lot about Jesus and I'm talking a lot about his bigness and his power. I think that's important nowadays. I think we need to remember as the church who we serve and not to be intimidated by the kings of this earth that are taking their stand and conspiring to destroy the son of God and to take his name down and bring it low. Oh, it's not going to happen, guys. The one enthroned in heaven laughs and holds them in derision. So let's just bask in the realities of who our God is. Jehovah in human skin. Oh, I'm excited about the title. So introducing the I am. If you remember the story of Moses in the Old Testament at the burning bush, I mean, God's going to literally inhabit a bush, which is an incredible picture about Christianity in the New Testament, isn't it? The fire of God is going to enter into something that no one would ever notice otherwise. It's so inconsequential. And yet when God moves into it, it can change the world. And out of it is going to speak forth the truths of the kingdom of heaven. And that's exactly what's going to happen. This one bush is going to be inhabited by the fire of God, the very presence of God. And out of it is going to come a voice that's going to change the course of nations. And a man named Moses is going to be stirred, moved, and commanded and commissioned into battle. And so Moses asks a simple question, you know, who am I to tell is sending me? What, what is your name? And God answers that question. And he says his name, which is to the Jews, something they don't even speak. In fact, the name of Jehovah, the unspeakable, what they call an ineffable name, is not even, we don't even know how to pronounce it. It's called the tetragrammaton or the four letters. And so oftentimes we use the term Yahweh or Yahweh, but it means I am. And so what he said was, I am that I am. And that's how it translates in our Bibles. But that's a strange name. What it means is I always have been who I am. And so in the past, I was this way. In the present, I am this way. And in the future, I'll always be this way. And that's who he is. That's the revelation, the greatest, most foundational revelation of who God is, is I am. And so introducing the I am, the ineffable, proper name of God, Jehovah, Yahweh, Yahweh, Adonai, and Lord. So in the Aramaic, it's Adonai. Jehovah is what we could call a euphemism. And so I'll go into what a euphemism is, but lest they accidentally take the name of the Lord, which when it says in the Ten Commandments, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, that's actually take that name, that unspeakable name, and handle it inappropriately. Okay, that's called blasphemy. And so as a result, lest they do that and blaspheme the name of God, they are going to create euphemisms. 
So blasphemy, as I just described, is to misuse and or misappropriate the ineffable name. And so it doesn't say don't speak the name, but the Jews took it to that extra measure. They didn't even want to speak it. And so it was only once a year on the Day of Atonement when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, offering the blood sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, that he would speak this ineffable, unspeakable name. And so as a result, throughout history, we don't even really know how to pronounce it. Isn't that just an amazing thought? But that's how holy and set apart this name is, which should shock us when Jesus's name is actually made the name above all names. In other words, you, you begin to recognize the significance of that name, and we are commanded to speak and to pray in that name. So it's just such a startling thing. You could imagine being a Jew, you wouldn't even speak this ineffable name, and then Jesus is going to come. And what his name actually means? Uh, Yeshua is the ineffable name, the I am name, Jehovah, combined with a verb to save. The I am saves. It's actually what his name means. It's the name above all names. It's a greater revelation. It's not just that he was, he is, and always will be, but the one who was and is and always will be has come to save you. Isn't that great? I love that. So, Blasphemy is the misuse of the name. And so this is going to lead to the invention of something called euphemy. We don't usually use that term. We use a term called euphemism. So lest the ineffable name be accidentally misspoken, they're going to create a alternate name to use to speak, which means that, but they don't want to say it, to show deference and regard and respect. So the best way for us to understand this is, for instance, I have six kids, and my kids don't call me Eric Winston Ludi. That's my formal name. That's my legal name. And that would be weird. Why? Because it's inappropriate for my kids to call me by my proper name. And this is God's proper name, right? And so there's a euphemism in place called daddy. Now, to each his own, how that, that word is used. Some it's just dad or some it's pops or papa and uh, daddy pie. I mean, I'm sure there's all sorts of options, right? And yet the name itself doesn't matter, but it's the euphemism that is. If my kids come up to me and go, hey, Eric, uh, could I have, you know, uh, the keys to the car? It just sounds really weird. It's like, my kids shouldn't call me that. And so that's where you see the Jews reasoning through this. It's inappropriate for us to actually call God by his proper name. <laughs> so they, they call him Jehovah, or they call him Yahweh, or Yahweh, or Adonai, or Lord, all caps. And it means the same thing. Isn't that just a fascinating statement? Now, the reason I went through all that is to sort of set the, 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 the stage for what is going to happen when Jesus comes to this earth. Because what does happen when Jesus, who is Jehovah, who is the I Am, suddenly enters into human skin and is living his life? What does that mean when he begins to behave as Jehovah and speak of himself? This is going to be interesting to find out. So the I Am in the New Testament... Mark 14, 61 through 65. But he held his peace, speaking of Jesus, and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, Uh-oh, guys, I am. See, if you're seeing this via video, you're actually, you can see my keynote there. If you're just hearing it on the podcast, you can't see it. It's, but it stands out. It's, it's very very strong and robust. Jesus is saying something that to a Jew is unspeakable. He actually responds with the proper name of God, I am. And then he adds to that, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. 
Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, what need we any further witnesses? Why was he so mad? I mean, Jesus is just telling the truth. To the high priest, he is hearing blasphemy. He is hearing something that is unspeakable. It should never be spoken. How could just a mere man ever speak that? How could he describe himself in the very, na- in the very name of God, the I amness of God being appropriated to a man? No, that's just terrible. So this is what he says next. You have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death, because that's what blasphemy deserves, right? And some began to spit on him and to cover his and to cover his face and to buffet him and to say unto him, Prophesy, and the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. You see, Jesus is accused of blasphemy. Isn't that interesting? You see, when you understand the godness of Jesus, this makes sense. A lot of Christians can read through the scriptures, but they don't oftentimes see the godness of Jesus. They see a good man. They see a noble man. They see a loving man. They see a man who can do miracles. He seems to have God power, but they don't see God in the flesh. It's very, very important to recognize that Jesus himself is going to clarify that he is God in the flesh. John 5.18, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father making himself equal with God. You see, you don't do that, guys. You can't make yourself equal with God, so they're seeking to kill him for this. John 8, 58 through 59. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Whoa, did he just say that? Before Abraham was, I am. What a statement. And he's actually saying what you think he may be saying there. He's, he's referring back to the burning bush right there. He is making a statement that is really profound here. So what did they do? How did the Jews respond? Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. He's just saying what is true and what is real. However, to them, it is deserving of death. It's called blasphemy. Is it blasphemy if you really are Jehovah, though? No, it's not. John 10, 31 through 33. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because that you, being a man, make yourself God. You see, Jesus actually is going to clarify to everyone listening, and the Jews are going to hear it a little more clearly than we will, who didn't grow up understanding what all all these statements mean, but he is going to make himself God. He's not making himself God. He is God, but he is going to present himself as God, and that is going to offend them, and they believe it's blasphemy because they don't believe he is God, and as a result, they believe he is deserving of death. John 19, 7, the Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Now, what's interesting is he is declaring himself the Son of God. But the key question that doesn't ever seem to be brought up here is, what if he is? (laughs) He fulfills all prophecy. They just can't see it. They don't want him to be, because he's not the Son of God the way that they have fashioned. They have a golden calf version of how God is supposed to be. They think he's supposed to come and defeat the Romans. They believe he's supposed to fit into their grid, but he comes and violates everything about their grid on purpose. And as a result, they cannot accept the fact when he says he is the Son of God. Preeminence. It's a great word. It means the fact of surpassing all others, superiority and dominion over all. 
Jesus is going to establish himself with preeminence. The battle over preeminence, who matters most? So in our life, when we are born, we have a battle inside of us. And it is a battle for preeminence. And the question is, who matters most? Because at first blush, when we first pop out of our mother's womb and we're uh, you know, gurgling in our little goo-goos and gagas, we don't think it out loud, but we deem ourselves the center of the universe. It's a really funny uh, derangement that we start with. And I'm just really glad that we're all really cute when we're born, lest uh, that really drive our parents crazy, right? However, we believe that we are the center of the universe and our screaming and our crying. And how about the fact that we yell, mine, uh, without ever being taught? How many parents have you ever seen sat down, sit down with their kid and say, now, this is your toy. And when a kid tries to take it, you yell out, mine. You see, a child learns the word mine and they learn the word no without ever being taught it. It is just an incredible phenomenon, right? But we start out with a king over our life and it's us. It's called self. And yet there's a battle of preeminence because as long as self remains the king of our life, we will die. We were headed to destruction. But if Jesus usurps that position, and takes it for himself to do that, we have to give it to him. Then we are saved. And so Colossians 1.18 says, and he is, which is an incredible statement of the I amness of Jesus, because we don't say I am, we say he is. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. The false notion of the modern church, I must increase that Christ may increase. There's a notion. Okay, I'm just calling a spade a spade on this one. There's actually multiple books written on this that I could point out. I'm not going to try and distract us with that. But that actually claim that God gets glory when we become all that. When life becomes about us and we really rise up and do what we love to do, what we have a vision to do in our life, then God can get glory out of that. It's sort of like you increase and then Christ can increase through that. Well, that's actually a false notion, and it's a bad foundation for the modern church, which has led to all sorts of problems. So John the Baptist is going to say the exact opposite. In John 3.30, he says he, or Jesus, must increase, but I, or self, for our case, must decrease. This is how the kingdom of heaven is established in the body of a man or a woman. It's when Jesus increases and we decrease. That's the proper movement forward. So there's a best-selling Christian author, and I'm giving an actual quote from it. I'm not trying to name names. If you have if notices, I have plenty of things that will go into who people are, what's, what's being said. But I also want to be very grace-filled to recognize that uh, the point isn't who's saying it always. It's what's being said, because sometimes it's not that you even know who the author is. It's that the idea is permeating our culture, our Christian culture. And this is what this best-selling Christian author says. He came, speaking of Jesus, to restore the glorious creation that you are and then set you free to be yourself. Now, that sounds really good. And to many of you are like, yeah, that's really well stated. However, why did he set you free? To be his. Not to be yourself, to be his. You're supposed to be changed into his image, to be converted into a picture of him to actually be a bondservant to the Most High God. You're set free from being a servant of sin to be a slave of righteousness. 
You're not just set free to be yourself. And so that's actually a false statement, but it's so permeated our Christian culture that when I bring it up, you might even be offended by it. Like, Eric, how dare you? Here's another quote from the same author, actually. Come out of the boat, take the throne. So imagine that you have a throne in your life, which we all sort of do. It's a place of command, a place of preeminence. You see, when self sits on that throne, we die. It's actually what sin is defined as. Whoever sits on that throne defines the health uh, or the failure of our life. If self sits on it, we're sinners. Because the outflow of self sitting in the control position is sin. Sins. The result of that is we will miss the mark in our life. We were called to showcase Jesus, but the only way for that to work is for him to take the throne in our life. To lift self up is to bring Christ down. That's a fact. And so when we exalt self, we actually bring Christ down. When we exalt Christ, self has to come down. And so that's how Christ is exalted. By self coming down, Christ is then given place to take the lead, the head position. So this best-selling Christian author, this is just a summary of what I repeated earlier. He says, take the throne. What does God say? I, think, I don't think that's the message of Scripture. The Apostle John says it in John seven eighteen. He that speaks of himself seeks his own glory. But he that seeks his glory, speaking of Jesus, that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. John the Baptist, again, says this. He, Jesus, must increase. And this is a statement to all of us. If I'm going to say, you want to grow up in Jesus, you want to get strong in Jesus, you want to glorify Jesus, well, then Jesus must increase in your life. And you, yourself, must decrease. That's a fact, and that's how it works. As we finish up, uh, I just want you to see this little media piece. And if you want to continue to go further into this series, go to ellersley.com forward slash daily, and you can get the second, third, and fourth piece. But I just want to introduce you to our five-week training that's going to launch in the summer and again in the fall. Love to have you consider and prayerfully uh, ponder being a part of it. God's blessings. A lot of us have doctrines, but they're not tied together because we lack a global understanding of Scripture. We lack a global understanding of how to rightly apply it. The kingdom of heaven is based on facts, truth. Jesus Christ himself is the truth. And when you get him right, and you know how to rightly appropriate it in your life, and you get those tools, then suddenly Christianity begins to shine. It lifts off the page. It functions. It lives. If you have a passion along these lines and you would desire a season just set apart, able to focus on the person of Jesus, I'd love you to consider being a part of a semester here at Allersley. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is streamed daily, Monday through Friday, from our studio in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekend church service is delivered live and streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. Note that our live weekday in-person version of Daily Thunder is scheduled to resume this upcoming June in conjunction with our training season. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.